Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change oh, whoa, agenda whoa, whoa, whoa. is a That's hoax. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. The climate this change agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence for it. And the reality is, the anti-carbon agenda is the wet blanket on our economy. And so the reality is, more people are dying of bad climate change policies than they are of actual climate change. Governor, Governor Haley. Our guest today is Professor Jim Kinter of George Mason University. Dr. Kinter is the director of the Center for Ocean, Land, Atmosphere Studies and the director of the Virginia Climate Center. Dr. Kinter has served as a National Research Council Associate at NASA's Space Flight Center, a faculty member at the University of Maryland, and a research scientist and executive director at the Institute of Global Environment and Society. He has also been a member of dozens of scientific studies and environmental advisory boards. He's published numerous scientific articles on environmental and climate related matters. So with that, Dr. Kenter, welcome to In Politic. Thank you so much. For this episode, we've kind of assembled a, a list of frequently asked questions related to climate change and the environment and uh, love to have you answer them in a manner really that a non-expert uh, would be able to understand, and that includes myself, uh, and, uh, full disclosure and honesty. So I'm really interested to learn um, uh, during this this little interview. So I want to start with really the ultimate basic defining question of what is or how do we define climate? And then, of course, subsequently, what do we mean by climate change? So climate is... Uh, we're, everybody is familiar with weather. Uh, weather is what we experience every day. Is it sunny? Is it raining? Is it snow? Is it windy? And sometimes we ex- we experience extreme weather, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, flash floods, and so on. What climate is, is an aggregation of all the statistics of weather. So when we think about climate, um, there's a there's a famous or perhaps apocryphal quote, which is, Climate is what we expect and weather is what we get. And so we think of climate as an average of of how the weather has behaved over some period of time. And of course, the weather is not constant. It's far from constant. Uh, When we talk about normal, that's probably the least frequent thing that we experience because we experience departures from normal. And those are the things that we remember. But for climates, for from my perspective as a climatologist, climate simply means average weather. And then we have to think about what's the period of time over which we're averaging. So for climatologists, the standard has been 30 years. We typically put a 30-year average together and call that climate. And, and of course, what we're finding now is that even a 30-year average is no longer what you might think of as a stationary data set. So in statistics, the holy grail is to get a sample which is stationary or homogeneous or is representative of what you would like to know about any given body of information. And we're finding, of course, that over the past 30 years, climate has changed. And over the past 100 years, climate has changed. And over the past 100,000 years, climate has changed. And 
you were talking about the dinosaurs over the past tens of millions of years, climate has changed. And all those different climate changes have different causes. But the thing that's happening now that's probably got everybody's attention is climate is changing faster today than it has in hundreds of thousands or perhaps a couple of million years. Even comparing what we have today to the last ice age, when substantial part of the continents of North America of, of the Northern Hemisphere were covered with kilometer thick sheets of ice, even the change from then to now took place over 20,000 years. And we're, we're making comparable changes today over periods of a few hundred years. So the big issue with climate change is not that it's changing, it's that it's changing way faster than it ever has before. We, so Matt, Matt uh, let me let me jump in because I, 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 let me. Uh, so climate, I, I, I think everybody can grasp that the climate is essentially an average or an aggregate of of the weather, and when we're talking about change, that means the what is if I can put it in a more layman's terms, what is normal, what is average, what is typical, that is changing, and it's changing at such a rapid and dramatic rate that is what we're what's causing this this alarm or discussion within the scientific community right in, in a more exactly. generic layman's sense exactly yeah so people have you know talked about this in terms of global warming right things are getting hotter and we we've seen every every year now right the hottest day uh you know happening in austin texas you know in 30 years occurred and then it occurred again the next year that kind of thing but but you speak in terms of change, not warming. Can you explain that briefly? So, yeah, there's there's some confusion in public discourse about climate change and global warming. They're essentially the same thing. When we talk about um, global warming, there's two words there. One, one is global and the other is warming. Uh, so we're really talking about a very specific measurement of the planet, and that is the global average surface air temperature. And that that's a number that we've been um, measuring directly for many decades, going back into the 19th century. And it's also a number that we can infer from what are called proxy records or paleoclimate records. And you know the drill. This is looking at tree rings. Dinosaurs. Um, looking at dinosaurs, dinosaurs are a little longer time scale than I'm interested in, but we can talk about dinosaurs if you like. But tree rings give us a record going back hundreds of years. Uh, interestingly, coral, if you drill into, uh, you know, an ancient coral reef, you basically are going back in time. If you drill into an ice sheet in the Antarctic, you are going back in time. And there's very good reason for that because the ice that you see in Antarctica is snow at the surface, but the snow doesn't melt from year to year because it's so cold. And so over time, the snow builds up and compacts, turns into ice. And what was laid down a decade ago is just a few centimeters down into the ice sheet. And what was laid down thousands of years ago is a few tens of meters down into the ice. So we so can, can, I we can, yeah, go ahead. So, so, when I, so, so, right, so, so this question of how do we know this has caused a lot of political agitation. Let's cause it, right? So, yeah. so when you're a scientist and you pull out an ice core from Antarctica or you look at coral, 
what do you actually see? How does the coral tell you something useful about climate? Uh, so in each one of those proxy records, I know we kind of went off into a rabbit hole about proxy records, but um, each one of those, there's a different indicator that's representative of what the climate was like or the weather was like back at the time that that moment in time was frozen, literally in the case of ice sheets. But if you think of coral, the coral are exposed to the environment as they're growing. And then when they die, they've basically stopped having that exposure. And, and that's how we get that time sample. In the case, but what are you what are you seeing in the in the coral? Is it is it like like growth over a certain period, and you see that it's it's truncated, or you're doing chemical analysis? What is the data that you're actually pulling out? It's it's both of those. So if you think about tree rings, trees will grow a lot when when environmental conditions are good for them, which means abundant moisture and the right temperature range. So the tree rings will be wider, and other and and if it's a drought year or a difficult time for growing, the tree rings will be narrower. Same thing with coral, they'll, they'll build up, the, the coral reef will build up to a deeper level uh, over a shorter period of time if the conditions are ripe. And if it's a coral bleaching event, if it's the water's too warm, uh, if the salinity is wrong, the coral won't be able to grow. Uh, when we look at the ice cores, there we're doing a more sophisticated, when I say we, I don't do this. This is a laboratory that we don't have here at George Mason, but what, what we're doing there is what's called isotopic analysis. So what's interesting about ice that's laid down in the environment is as the snow falls, it traps air in bubbles. And those bubbles just stay there forever uh, as the ice forms and gets thicker and thicker. So when we drill down, we're, we're taking slices through the ice cores that we get. And in each sample each one of those slices, we do a chemical analysis of the air that's trapped in those bubbles. So we know uh, we know the carbon content and in particular the isotopic carbon content. Carbon has a number of isotopes, carbon 12, carbon 14, as well as other um, species that occur in the atmosphere naturally. And we can evaluate what temperature range would be appropriate for those isotopic ratios. And so it's it's uh, it's almost like magic, but you can you can look at an ice core isotopic analysis as a thermometer, and it basically is telling us the temperature going back. Uh, the latest ice cores in Antarctica are going back close to a million years now, which, wow. which so, to me is mind-boggling. It, it absolutely. So um, to bring it back down to more layman's terms, right? Again, if I can keep us grounded a little bit. So um, when we're talking about the climate and climate change, it's just simply, again, an average. One of those measures of the average, just one of which is global temperatures um, or proxy measures, as you and we average this out. And what strikes me is when we have these conversations about measurements and about averages, as a non-expert and not familiar with this field and discipline of science at all, I have, as most other, you know, uh, average citizens and folks just read in the news, you see these charts and graphs that come out specifically related to this year. And you see all these little like lines, maybe measuring temperature over, you know, decades and decades. And they all look fairly consistent. And then I see like 2023, for example, and it's just a spike. And you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be an academic to see, holy shit, like something's going on here, right? And that's part of the the crisis or the concern that's growing within the scientific community, correct? Yes, that's right. 
and because we're always making predictions, we're making predictions of tomorrow's weather, we're making predictions of next season's rainfall, we're making predictions of where that annual global average temperature is going to go in the future based on human behavior. And um, this year, the numbers are exceeding our predictions. So that's surprising. If you make a prediction, you're using the best available information to make the prediction. And if the data isn't conforming to your prediction, you have to explain it. So in addition to seeing the fact that just the average temperature of the whole planet is going up over time, we're also seeing that it's having an impact on where it's raining a lot and where it's not raining at all. Those places are changing and they're changing rapidly. So that's that's why instead of calling it global warming and saying, yeah, but what about precipitation? Well, we call it climate change because it's the whole climate system is it's acting like a system and it's changing along with the temperature. Yeah, and, and we'll get into uh, kind of the controversies and misconceptions here in just a second. Obviously, we have to, but uh, that's where you start to get those kind of the criticisms of global warming, but it, it's freezing in, in Minnesota this season, right? And that's that's the difference, again, between weather and, and climate, right? right. Um, I Before we kind of get into a lot of the policies, controversies, and misconceptions, I still want to stay with some definitional um uh, uh terms here and i've got a couple of more and I, again these are i think frequently asked questions or confused within the public um what is carbon dioxide co2 and then how does that also relate to climate change um and maybe i can kind of throw on throw on a few others in uh, in just a minute but we'll start with that one so carbon dioxide it's a molecule of carbon atoms and oxygen atoms it's a very common in the environment, uh, you know, if if I exhale right now, I'm I'm adding carbon dioxide to the to my room. It occurs naturally in the Earth's atmosphere uh, for a variety of reasons. Volcanoes produce carbon dioxide, and importantly, plants are respiring carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is pulled out of the atmosphere by plants to form stems and trunks and leaves, and um, and they the 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 um, waste product, if you like, of of photosynthesis, the, what plants are doing to form plants and stems and leaves, is oxygen, which is wonderful for us because we inhale oxygen as as part of our biological process. So carbon dioxide, it's a it's a naturally occurring molecule. It's uh, ubiquitous in the atmosphere, but in a very tiny, tiny, tiny trace amount, only about. 400 parts per million are uh, carbon dioxide molecules. And, and, and what about, was about water? Let me, Matt, if I can, but how does that, yeah. does CO2 relate to climate change, if at all? Because I, I think that's something that's frequently discussed or conflated, right? Right. So, so CO2, that's the chemical formula for carbon dioxide, uh, has this interesting property that it absorbs and re-emits energy in a band of what we call the electromagnetic spectrum that is in the infrared. So, you know, <laughs> you wanted a short answer. Um, the electromagnetic spectrum includes the, the light we can see with our eyes. Our eyes are sensitive to the visible part of the spectrum. It also includes ultraviolet, which you get from um, you know, x-rays and, and other devices are producing very high frequency radiation. The earth itself produces radiation. 
And I know that that boggles people's mind. They think radiation is as bad. You see the sign on the door that says this is a radiation lab. You don't want to go in there. But radiation is a thing that every object in the universe that has a temperature produces radiation. And the Earth is no exception. The Earth emits radiation back into space, and that's how it maintains its temperature. So we receive energy from the sun. We emit it back into space. What we get from the sun is mostly in the visible part of the spectrum, and what we emit into space is in infrared. And carbon dioxide, along with a few other molecules like methane and even water vapor, they all have this peculiar property that they can absorb energy in that infrared band and re-emit it. So when the Earth is trying to cool itself off by emitting infrared radiation into space, carbon dioxide is absorbing it and re-emitting it to warm the planet back up. And in fact, if we didn't have uh, those gases, those tiny, tiny trace gases, carbon dioxide, water vapor, methane, the Earth would be more than 30 degrees Celsius colder than it is today. So our average temperature in, in Fahrenheit terms, it's about 59 degrees is our average temperature for the whole planet for the whole year. And if it were, um, if we had none of those gases that we call greenhouse gases, because they produce the greenhouse effect, if we had none of those gases, the planet would be zero degrees Fahrenheit. So meaning no liquid water on this on the surface of the earth. The earth would be an, a ball of ice. So we really need those gases. We're very, very dependent upon having carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. What's happening with global warming is we're adding more carbon dioxide through industrial processes and land use change, and that's shifting the balance of energy. That's great. Um, could you very briefly explain why we have sort of these two drivers, right? As I understand it, you've got CO2 um, and then you have you have issues with with water, right? With the ocean. Why is water so important as a driver? Well, water, water's got a couple of peculiar properties. One is it's just like carbon dioxide. It has this property that it will absorb and re-emit energy in that infrared part of the spectrum. So it acts like a greenhouse gas when it's in its vapor form. The other peculiar thing about water is it can occur naturally within the range of naturally occurring temperatures in three different phases. So you can have solid water, liquid water, and gaseous water. So solid water, we have a name for that. We call it ice or snow. Uh, liquid water, we just call water. And gaseous water, we call water vapor. So it, it occurs in all three of those. And what's what's also interesting about water is it has uh, it has a lot of capacity to absorb heat. So you were talking about being close to the coast and not experiencing the same bitter cold temperatures that you might experience inland during the winter. That's because it takes more energy to warm up the water in the ocean and the sound where that you're close to. And so the the same amount of energy that would um, that is that would it would take to warm up the continent is much less. So the continent can get much colder, much faster than the ocean. So in the wintertime, the ocean will be warmer than the continent. And in the summertime, vice versa, the ocean will be cooler than the continent because it takes more energy for the water to, to warm up and more energy being emitted to have it cool off. All right. So I want, I, I have just one more kind of defining question um, before we kind of get into fun stuff, if you will. Okay. Uh, and you already hit on this in terms of talking about um, 
uh, ultraviolet um, um, radiation emitted from the sun. And that, of course, is um, the ozone layer. And mm-hmm. I don't think we've yet explicitly kind of defined that for listeners of what, again, is an ozone layer. And then I think that also relates to a little bit of confusion, again, in the public, because growing up, I remember the ozone layer is is being depleted. And now I've read that it's it's healing. Um, so what is this what does this all mean? How do we find it? What does it mean? and 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 does that fuel into conspiracies and misconceptions in the general public? Sure. Uh, well, ozone, it's it's another molecule. I like c o two and water vapor or molecules. Ozone is a molecule that has only oxygen atoms. It has three oxygen atoms. What we're used to breathing in and out is o two. So that's oxygen with two atoms an oxygen molecule with two atoms of oxygen. Ozone has three atoms of oxygen. And ozone has also, uh, like these other molecules, has an interesting property, and that is that it absorbs solar radiation in those higher frequency, higher energy bands. So the the in, the uh, ultraviolet, and to some extent visible, but even the higher frequency ones that are very damaging to uh, to biological tissue, those are all getting absorbed by ozone. And as it turns out, in the Earth's atmosphere, there's a layer uh, many kilometers above the surface. It's about 50 kilometers above the surface. Uh, well, actually, it's between 20 and 60 kilometers above the surface. But it's it's a layer where there's a higher concentration of ozone, still a very small concentration. It's not like if you go up there and take a deep breath, you're only going to get ozone. It's it's still a small concentration, but it's a higher relative concentration in that layer. And so as, as harmful radiation from the sun is trying to get to the surface of the earth, that layer of ozone is absorbing it and preventing it from reaching the surface. So it's it's effectively protecting us from what would be damaging to our DNA. Um, when you're talking about the ozone depletion, so back in the 70s and, and 80s, we noticed that that concentration of ozone in that layer high up in the atmosphere was going down. And we could only start measuring it when we had satellites in the 1980s to be able to measure it. And so we, we noticed that the ozone, particularly over the South Pole, in the Southern Hemisphere, was going down over time it was concentrations were being depleted and so there was uh, considerable research was devoted to that at the time and we determined that it was because of a chemical reaction with what are called chlorofluorocarbons which is a very complex molecule that's produced synthetically for refrigerators and air conditioners turns out that it's a it's a fluid that works very very well as a refrigerant so take your your refrigerator in your kitchen or the air conditioner in your car all of them had freon which is the commercial name for chlorofluorocarbon and we found that there is a chemical reaction of chlorofluorocarbons with ozone that that makes ozone get destroyed it goes back to being diatomic oxygen or, or o2 so um at the time there was a lot of international discussion about what to do about it. And ultimately there was a, a conference in Montreal where all the countries of the world came to an agreement to phase out Freon, uh, phase out all uh, so-called CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, from uh, manufacture. 
And as a result, ozone is now recovering because we, I, we understood why it was human activity that was destroying ozone. And when we stopped doing the bad thing, ozone has been recovering. We're, so we'll, we'll get to policies in just a moment. But that, I found that really interesting because it demonstrates that it's human behavior that is changing our environment, climate writ large, and in that there are policies that can help correct that trajectory, um, that harmful trajectory. Right. That's fascinating. I'll, I'll say I'll say two other things about that that I I find interesting. So I, I was I was a meteorologist, practicing meteorologist at the time. Uh, it wasn't my area, but there was a big debate in our community between the so-called atmospheric chemists and the so-called atmospheric dynamicists. So there were people who were saying it has nothing to do with CFCs and this molecular this you know complex molecular reaction it's all about circulation and the earth's circulation is changing so it's moving ozone around in that layer high above the surface and that's why we're getting a, a hole they called it the ozone hole over the south pole and so a lot of experimentation and modeling was done over a period of a couple of years very intense and very quick actually by by typical scientific standards it was very fast and and it was just the the dynamical explanation was ruled out. It couldn't possibly explain the magnitude of the change. The chemical reaction, we took samples in the high altitude atmosphere with, with aircraft and um, scientists were deployed to Antarctica to take measurements from the surface. And ultimately we were able to show conclusively that it was this chemical reaction and, and not just the atmosphere moving ozone around. So that was a that was a big success story for the science. And then on the policy side, there was a big debate because um, people didn't want to give up refrigerators and air conditioners. There was so much of civilization over the past couple of decades was dependent on the fact that you could live in places that were unlivable before by virtue of having air conditioning. So nobody wanted to give that up. And it was um, the chemical manufacturing companies that came up with an alternative to Freon, commercially called Puron which is a different molecule that works almost as well as a refrigerant, but does not react with ozone. So once there was a profitable solution to the ozone hole problem, bing, bang, it, it was solved. And the international treaty was very easy to agree on. So I have, I have a personal story. Uh, as a kid, I grew up on a farm and we would have to recharge the air conditioners on our equipment because uh, I grew up in Western Kansas, where it's very, very hot in the summer during harvest time. And when when the law came into effect banning Freon, uh, we were given a bunch of cash and told to go to the uh, the local farm parts store and, and buy up every case of Freon that we could because we were afraid of exactly what you're saying. Um, and so, of course, we continued to use the Freon as long as we could. And then when we ran out, everybody was nervous, but it turned out it was no big deal because we had Puron. Um, and off we went. And, and even even before that, I remember I remember charging systems and then recapturing. You had these recapture kits where you could you could capture the Freon for a while until they had the uh, the replacement. So yeah. that's fascinating. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And it's it's a, it's still an issue today because all those air conditioners and refrigerators that had Freon in them that people didn't do what you did and actually recapture the Freon. They just threw them out in the environment. And ultimately, yep. the containment fails and the Freon leaks into the environment. So we still have plenty of Freon, plenty of CFCs that are getting up into the ozone layer. So the recovery has been much slower than it could have been 
if there had been a, a total cessation and a complete, you know, pulling all the Freon out of circulation at that time. But, you know, over time, it will all work itself out because we're not using Freon anymore commercially. Let's move into some of the controversies and misconceptions. And um, we'll start with the least political, perhaps. Um, and that is that there are some skeptics that will say that climate change is good or it's a natural phenomenon. How would you respond to that? So climate change is a natural phenomenon. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to explain ice ages if climate is stationary. <laughs> so so there's nothing wrong with that statement, but making the argument that therefore climate change is a nothing burger is wrong because it neglects the rate of change. So the big issue that that humans are causing climate change is that we're doing it very, very fast. Uh, the, the rate of climate change just in the past hundred years is faster than any time that we can infer climate has changed in the past for at least hundreds of thousands of years and possibly a couple of million years. So that means that the, the and why is the rate of change important? Well, because first and foremost, ecosystems have acclimated to slow climate change, evolution, the development of um, the range of various uh, various species. So species will have a range in terms of where they're willing to live. And that depends critically on temperature and sunshine and water availability. And if you make rapid changes in the, in the temperature and the water availability, those species cannot adapt. They don't have what we call adaptive capacity to respond to very, very rapid changes because evolution is a slow thing. So if you change the rate of climate change relative to the rate of evolution, you endanger ecosystems. Similarly, humans, humans have been called civilized. I'm not sure today, but uh, anyway, we've been quote unquote civilized for about 10,000 years when agriculture got started. And that 10,000 years is perhaps the most stable period in terms of climate that we can find in the paleoclimate record. It's just been rock steady and, and has enabled humans to develop agriculture and cities, ag, you know, all, all the things that we associate with human civilization have been en enabled by the very, very stable climate. So uh, I wanted to get to Vivek Ramaswamy in a second, but I, what I want to ask is I think people have in their mind uh, this idea that we've been talking about climate change and how bad it is or is going to be for a long time. But what they don't have in their mind clearly, I think, is that time frame, right? How, when does it get really bad, right? When, 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 do, when, you know, when does the tornadoes, the, the super storms happen and everything else that we see in the movies? And, and how long would it take to to fix this if we actually started doing the right things? Do, do climate scientists have, have these things in mind in their models? Well, so depending on where you are and who you ask, some people would say the really bad stuff is already happening. If you go to Paradise, California and say, uh, you know, when do you think climate change is gonna cause trouble for you? They would say our whole town burned to the ground five years ago. So, uh, and, and similarly, if you go to 
I'm here in Virginia. Uh, Virginia is one of the two poster childs in North America, poster children for uh, sea level rise in North America because sea level is rising twice as fast in Norfolk as it is anywhere else on the planet and or, or on the average of the rest of the planet. And so world's largest naval base in Norfolk, Virginia, a uh, population of more than 2 million people living essentially at what's currently sea level. Sea level rises a meter or two, as we expect it should happen over the next several decades to a century from now. Uh, Norfolk will be underwater. So, uh, and similarly, New Orleans. So those, you could say that things have already happened that are uh, the the doom and gloom or the really bad stuff that you were talking about. Um, But in terms of what we expect in the future, we expect more change to happen. Um, If we were able to stop emitting carbon dioxide and methane at, you know, three o'clock this afternoon, the climate would stop changing fairly rapidly. There, the, the, there, is, there used to be this idea of what we call the climate change commitment, which was that even if we stop doing those, those things that we do, that the climate would keep going because there's some inertia in the system. The system would keep warming up. And that's true to some extent, but not nearly as much as you might think. So um, the, the various factors that influence climate would come into balance fairly quickly if we stop. But of course, there's no prospect of us stopping. That would mean a complete reversal of how the the world economy has grown for the past 150 years. We've been dependent upon fossil fuels since the late 19th century. So, so, So that's unlikely. And therefore, we expect climate to keep changing as a result of continuing emissions. And the warmer we make it, so I always think of the, you hear about 1.5 degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius as as sort of benchmarks that okay until we get to that point everything's cool and after we get to that point you know it's 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 the, <laughs> you you've you've lost everything and that isn't true uh, you know we were already seeing impacts they're 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 already on balance negative impacts uh, and and we expect those to continue to to get worse as we get to 1.5, as we get to 2.0. If we get to three or four degrees Celsius, that's this index of climate change, then we'll see species extinctions, we'll see sea level rise swamping most of our very highly populated coastal cities. So things are gonna get very bad. And and those sorts of things could happen within a century. so that's kind of really long way out there. And people have a hard time thinking about what's going to happen in the century because, well, I'll be dead in a century. I'll be dead in a couple of decades. So or hopefully a couple of decades. So, so they can't think about that. But what I tell my students is I say, well, okay, you're 18 to 22 years old today. Uh, many of you will have children and many of your children will have children. And when your children's children are adults, it will be the next century. It will be well into the next century. And all of these things that we say are gonna happen over the next century will be what your grandchildren will be experiencing. So it doesn't take that long to think in human terms about what climate, this is why the rapid change is so important because it's only a generation or two before things get very, very bad. That's a great, great way to put it. Thank you. 
Uh, Matt, you mentioned uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Did you want to bring that question up? Um, so he, uh, Vivek is a, is a Republican presidential candidate. And um, I think he said this in the, in the latest debate. Is that right? Or the, the previous one, in any case. Um, so he said this, he called climate change a hoax. And he said, uh, he said something that I think a lot of um, folks actually, uh, you know, agree with, right? The reality is more people are dying of bad climate change policies than they are of actual climate change. Um, and so, I mean, so, so the answer is, is the question is, 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 how do you respond to that? Uh, well, it's patently false. It's patently deniable with data. It's... Um, it, it, it kind of comes down to uh, whether you believe science or not. And, and I, you know, I'll just make a side comment that I'm my, one of my concerns about the United States is there's been a devaluing of education. And so we have generations of people who are growing up who aren't necessarily getting the, um, they're, they're not getting the education they need to be critical thinkers. So when they're presented with data, they glaze over. When they're presented with scientific arguments, they say, well, that's over my head, or I can't understand that, can't you speak English? So, th so I see that as part of the problem, is that if you want to refute a statement like that from a, from a political candidate, and I'm sorry, I'm not paying attention to, to any of that, it's not an election year. I, I just can't get excited about it until there's an election year. But whatever. Um, uh, <laughs> We could talk about U.S. politics and its vagaries, but but the point is that if somebody says it's a hoax, they have to present some data that refutes the data that I have, and and the overwhelming, you know, almost no other data, the overwhelming body of evidence we have is that climate is changing. It's changing faster than it ever has before, and humans are responsible. Uh, and that the the net effects are negative. So some effects are going to be positive. If you have less severe winters where it gets very cold, you'll you'll have less incidence of respiratory disease associated with cold weather. That's a good thing. You'll have you'll have to spend less on snow removal. That's a good thing. I mean, here in D.C., we haven't had snow the last two years, so the snow removal budget has been a surplus. And that's great. The city managers have money to, to play with to do other things for citizens, and they don't have to just just push snow out of the way. But all of the other impacts, the, the impacts on ecosystems, the impacts on human health, the impacts on infrastructure, they're all negative. And they're all negative meaning costly, costing lives, costing public health dollars, costing infrastructure costs. It's why the federal government passed the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, both of those are intended to reverse the, the negative impacts or at least make the country more resilient to these negative impacts. So to say it's a hoax, to say it doesn't matter, to say it's, it's a good thing, not a bad thing, is just nonsense, absolute nonsense. Do you, do you get any uh, climate change deniers in your classes? So, so I teach a class called Climate 101, <laughs> which is for non-majors. And um, I, I'm listening to, to how you guys are interpreting what I say, because that's you're kind of like telling me how my students are receiving what I say. So I have to, to find better ways to communicate. But um, 
we 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 always ask the students at the beginning of the semester uh, a number of questions about how do you feel about climate change? Do you, do you think climate is changing? Do you think it matters? Do you, have you had any negative impacts yourself? Have you had any positive impacts yourself? Do you care? We ask all those questions and we, we've collected those data over about 20 years and uh, we're not publishing it. So we don't, you know, we're not doing anything with the data except anecdotal, but anecdotally, when I started teaching this class 20 years ago, a much higher percentage of students were coming in as skeptical or, or denying. And when we ask them specifically in class, we say, well, why, why don't you think climate change is a thing? They say, well, my dad says it's a hoax. And so, and, and then we, we give them the same questionnaire at the end of the semester and many of them have changed their opinions, which is yay, yay for education. But, um, but lately, that is not the case. Now, it may be self-selecting. The students who take Climate 101 are the ones who, who believe the climate is changing. They want to learn about it. And the ones who don't believe it's changing aren't taking the class. So there is, you know, there's a polling sampling error that's built into that. So I, I don't want to put, that's why I can't publish that. But it is uh, away from a much higher percentage of skepticism to a much lower one. Yeah, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about policies uh, that have been successful, um, but as we kind of talk about the controversies, um, I've I've heard some folks, and, and this includes politicians, that discount climate change policies on the basis that they don't work or that they're unreliable, or they'll actually blame climate change initiatives. Um, so I think there's a politician who talked about, you know, frozen wind turbines, you know, this alternative resources now blaming for power failures and in, in Texas or Teslas are uh, an electronic uh, electric vehicles are making the environment worse than gas powered vehicles or, you know, some initiatives harm wildlife. Um or you'll you'll hear about uh, especially in the social media sphere uh, about you know eco hypocrisy I guess is a, is a new term now that you know climate um, the criticism that climate policy makers or criticize climate policy makers for taking an airplane uh, to a climate conference I mean is there legitimacy or how do we generally respond to this notion of eco hypocrisy as well. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think the way to look at it is, so the solution to climate change is easy to say. Stop emitting fossil fuel emissions. You know, stop emitting carbon dioxide and methane, which are the byproducts of fossil fuel combustion. And stop cutting down trees. Very easy to say. I just said it in one sentence. And very hard to do. Uh, the global economy, as I said earlier, it's been built up over 150 years on petroleum and coal, bottom line. So if you say, well, okay, petroleum and coal are, are bad and we have to stop using them. So you have to then say, okay, well, how do you keep the same level of economic activity for 8 billion humans? If they're not allowed to burn coal and they're not allowed to burn natural gas and they're not allowed to generate methane or carbon dioxide in any industrial or residential use, and they're not allowed to cut down trees to make space for their for their livestock to graze or for settlements, what do you do? And so um, 
the other thing I like to say is that it's not rocket science. We know what the solutions are. They're easy to say, and we even have the technology to do them. The problem is that the technology, there's two problems with technology. One is most of it does not scale to the global level. It's, it's, it's small scale stuff. If you put up one wind turbine, it's enough power for a few houses. You need thousands or millions of those turbines to replace all the electricity that you've been generating by burning coal and natural gas. If, if you have electric vehicles, well, electric vehicles have a couple of problems. One is they have a much shorter range than gasoline-powered vehicles. So you're going to have to reinvent the infrastructure. We have a gasoline station on every corner in populated America. Why, you know, when are we going to get an EV charging station on every corner in populated America? And when are we going to have battery technology that gives us the longer range? And, and when are we going to figure out how to recycle those batteries so they're not worse for the environment than burning fossil fuel? So those are... I view those as engineering challenges. They're not scientific challenges because we know what the solutions are. We know how the science tells us we should be going, but we have some engineering things to work out, scaling up primarily. We, so, we just we just got to get to that that point, right? And and at, at the, the societal second, global level, right? And the second problem with it, I, I always quote Upton Sinclair, who said it's difficult to convince someone to do something if their paycheck depends on them not doing it. And so think about whose paycheck depends on burning fossil fuel. Everybody, I'm talking to you on the internet. Well, there's electricity flowing into my computer and your computer and somebody's powering the, the communication cable and somewhere natural gas is being combusted to produce that electricity. So my paycheck and your paycheck are depending on burning fossil fuel. So. And, you know, it's not just the fossil fuel companies. It's not just ExxonMobil, the sort of poster child for the petroleum industry. Um, they certainly, you know, stand to lose a lot if somebody comes and says, you may not burn fossil fuel anymore. So they, you know, and, and they're taking great pains to keep that from happening or at least slow it down. But, so, um let me, let me actually build on it because that was a question I had. And I, I kind of want to transition now to the future or looking forward. But picking up on that point uh, and you talk about, you know, uh, industry and these businesses, but you had mentioned earlier that private industry had developed an alternative to Freon. Would that not to suggest potentially that, let's say, oil and gas companies has a have a financial incentive to help contribute to the reduction or managing climate change, granted that is a financial incentive, um, but that could be, there's a, a potential for partnership in terms of looking forward to the future and addressing these issues, correct? Absolutely. And I mean, I planted that seed on purpose. The When you asked about ozone, it's a classic example of difficult problem uh, both scientific and technical uh, and sociopolitical and entrenched camps who don't want the solution to happen because, again, they're making a profit. Dow Chemical and other chemical companies are making a profit on selling Freon. So they have an entrenched incentive not to change the status quo. 
along comes a technological solution, Huron, that they already have all the infrastructure to produce. Those very companies that are profiting from the bad stuff have what it takes to profit from the good stuff. And so if we could do the same thing with carbon dioxide and methane, find a profitable way for the companies that today profit from burning fossil fuel to tomorrow profit from renewable energy generation, you would see a complete sea change in all of the politics overnight. It, it, it yeah, seems... A, a, Sorry, I mean, I was just going to say, it seems like these companies are usually vilified um, by activists, but a more sensible, pragmatic solution is view them as partners, especially going back to what you're just saying in terms of the global economy scale. They have the infrastructure in place. So there's that it's a race to come up with that profitable solution. And then they have the existing infrastructure. Uh, It seems like a great partnership. Right. And I'll give you I'll give you two other examples um, here in this country, in the United States, depending on which state you're in. If you go back 30 or 40 years ago, most of the electricity was being generated by burning coal. In some cases, very dirty coal, coal that's, uh, you know, bituminous coal that produces a lot of byproduct effluent that's polluting. And if you look at it today, very little electricity generation in the United States is being done by burning coal. Here in Virginia, it was 60% coal 20 years ago. Today, it's 4%. Now, is this because everybody got virtuous and decided renewable energy is the future? No. It's because fracking happened, natural gas got cheap, and everybody had an easy technological a coal-burning electricity generation plant to a natural gas burning electricity generation plant. Basically, all you had to take out was the boiler. So the boiler is either either heating, either burning coal or you're burning natural gas to heat up a fluid that generates steam. And so all you had to take out was the boiler and a relatively cheap technological swap. And suddenly we're, we're on natural gas and not coal. And why is that good for global change? Because coal produces twice as much greenhouse gas as natural as burning natural gas does. So by switching from coal to natural gas, we solve half the problem. We can't stop there, unfortunately. We still have half the problem, but, but that was a big one. And the other example I'll give is one of the solutions, a renewable energy solution, not just solar and wind, but also geothermal. We take advantage of the fact that there's a different temperature underground than at the surface in the air. And uh, people are doing this residentially. They, they build a geothermal uh, supply system. They, they drill down a few meters underground. The temperature stays about the same all year round if you just drill down a few meters. And then you can put a heat pump in to pump the heat down when it's hot and pump the heat out when it's cold. Well, you could also do what's called enhanced geothermal. Instead of drilling down a few meters, drill down a few kilometers where it's not the same temperature all year round, but it's hot very hot. And by drilling down to where it's very hot, you get a much higher efficiency energy exchange. Now, who has the technology to drill down kilometers into the ground and exchange fluids with the surface? It's the petrochemical industry that has all that infrastructure. So instead of fracking to get natural gas, they could frack to do heat exchange or energy exchange with the deep underground, and they could turn that into geothermal energy generation. And for, you know, it's not cheap, but it was, it's way 
less cost than scrapping all of your oil drilling and coal and natural gas fracking equipment in favor of building solar panels and wind farms. So there's a there is a pathway for uh, for the the petroleum industry or the, the the fossil fuel industry to find a profitable alternative. Um, it just uh, you know at this point it doesn't scale and it's there's still some technical technological hurdles. But like I said, they're engineering problems that if we invest in them, we'll solve them. We're smart people here in the United States, so it it wouldn't it would it would be possible to do that. So building on that answer, uh, which I'm fascinated about, uh, what about, you know, we have a lot of people that will say things like, well, we got space mirrors coming, right? We have fusion, um, all these kinds of things. What about geoengineering? Is that realistic in the next century? Uh, well, I mean, that's another one. We, we have the technology. We know, we know how it works. The problem is we don't know what the unintended consequences are. So the, the geoengineering, um, I mean, there's a couple that that I've heard about. One is uh, injecting sulfate aerosols into the high atmosphere. So that's a that's a, that's a mouthful, but it what it means is that um, sulfate's another it's another molecule, and it has uh, it, it you can get sulfate into a very tiny tiny aerosol form, a very tiny uh, you know sub subvisible uh, microscopic size particle. And uh, we call those aerosols because they will float in the air. The, they, won't, they won't precipitate out instantly. So you can, uh, the property that's interesting about sulfates is they reflect solar uh, radiation. So energy that's coming from the sun, it's, it gets reflected by ice, it gets reflected by bright clouds, it also gets reflected by sulfate aerosols. And so you can reduce the amount of energy coming in by putting sulfate aerosols in the high atmosphere. And then you can let all global warming happen you want because you're not getting as much energy in, so you, you, you'll effectively keep from warming up the planet. The problem with that is, there's many problems with that. One is if we keep increasing CO2 in the atmosphere and let sulfate aerosols basically provide a parasol, right? It's just like putting up an umbrella so you're not getting as much sunshine. Um, we're still going to be injecting carbon dioxide into the ocean. And that ocean is getting more and more acidic as a result of carbon dioxide pollution. And that's affecting species that are at the bottom of the food chain. So as you start killing off those microscopic species, um, you're going, you know, ultimately there's no tuna. <laughs> and nobody will be able to get tuna tartare at their favorite restaurant. So, so that's an unintended consequence of putting sulfate aerosols to change the energy balance at the top of the atmosphere. Um, we also don't know if there's other potential chemical effects of having way more sulfate in the atmosphere than we used to have. So those are things that we, we might explore and maybe over the next few decades, we will determine what the magnitude of those unintended consequences are and whether they can be managed. So those are, those are possibilities. But I think it would be very rash to just buy up a fleet of airplanes and start putting them up to dump sulfate aerosols in the stratosphere. It's just a very bad idea at this point. Uh, I have two last wrap-up questions, um, very generic kind of closing questions. Um, the first one, especially as an academic, is if you had this giant hypothetical megaphone 
that you could reach out not only beyond to your students, but the United States, the world, policymakers, whomever you envision, what would you say? What was what would be like one thing you would really want everybody to know in this hypothetical situation? Wow. Um, well, I spent a whole semester trying to tell people that, and, and I'm not, as you've figured out, I'm not very short-winded. <laughs> so, well, I, I, to me, it comes down to policy. I mean, th- we often hear people say, I'm going to become a vegetarian, or I'm going to change my light bulbs to be compact fluorescent, or I'm going to put solar panels on the roof of my house because I own my own house. That's kind of a first world solution, right? Um, so the problem is that, and that will work, that will solve the global warming problem if everybody does it. But the operative part of the phrase is if everybody does it and not everybody's going to do it, they have no incentive to do it. So there has to be a policy change. It has to be, it has to be a policy change at every level, local state and federal levels in every country that incentivizes behaviors that make us transition and transition rapidly away from fossil fuels and away from deforestation. And, and so so I'm a big fan of, you know, what do you do about climate change? You vote <laughs> because the people who make policy are the people we elect. And if the people we elect are not in favor of policies that are going to make a rapid transition to renewable energy and restricting deforestation or, or, or incentivizing afforestation, re- replanting forests, then, uh, then, you know, individual action is not going to be sufficient. Turns out it's a collective action problem. Tragedy of the commons. Listen up, kids. It is is the tragedy of the unregulated commons. Exactly. Uh, Very last question. And um, and I think we ask this to a lot of folks who come on here. And I think it's very apropos given what we're talking about. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Oh, I'm a natural optimist. uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be teaching Climate 101 or or talking to you guys if I wasn't an optimist because I'd, I'd be looking for a bunker someplace. <laughs> so I'm definitely an optimist. But, you know, it's a big challenge. It's a global problem. Um, Eight billion people have to change their behavior or at least at least six billion of them have to change their behavior. And, uh, you know, that's that's a tall order. And like I said, there's there's lots of people and companies who profit by not making the changes that we have to make. So we have to make it possible for them to to see a gain in making this change and not just out of the goodness of their hearts or or the fact that they, you know, they want to do something good for the planet or they have religious uh, you know, aspirations. It, it cannot be only that. Those are all good things but it really has to be a global collective action. And, um, and, and I, you know, I, I see all the, all the indicators are good things that are happening at the international level on, on climate change, not on other aspects. There's a lot of bad things happening internationally, but on climate change, everything is looking good. And um, here in the United States, things are looking great because we've passed these enormous climate change measures in the past couple of years. Um, that you know and the the last thing i'll say is we're not seeing we haven't turned the corner yet we're seeing global emissions going up still and 2015 all the nations of the world agreed that they would take measures to stop stop increasing 
not to necessarily to decrease, but at least to stop increasing their emissions by the year 2030. And we, you know, that means we have to stop going up and start going down and we have not turned that corner yet. So, so even though I'm optimistic, I, I see, you know, time is running out. We have to do things more rapidly than we have been doing. Well, I want to uh, thank you, Professor, for joining us on Politic. You've really helped us understand was extremely, an extremely important issue and one that will uh, impact uh, um, not only our current um, generations, but future generations around the world. So thank you for your time. It was my pleasure. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. So I think uh, I think Professor did a great job in defining a lot of you know terms that are often misunderstood or you know broad misconceptions. But I think one of the big takeaways that I took personally out of this this discussion um, was that there are clear policy solutions, despite what you know some some political uh, politicians and political conservatives would suggest that it's a hoax or that you know climate change policies are making things worse. Uh, that is fundamentally not true. That there are clear policy solutions. But what was fascinating, as Professor highlighted, is that it's it, it takes a global effort to come up with solutions. It's not just these simple local uh, initiatives of I'm going to drive an electronic electric vehicle. I'm going to change my light bulbs. I'm going to recycle this, this singular, you know, water bottle. Um, but it, it takes large scale business infrastructure to implement change uh, on a societal level um, across civilization, across the world. Um, and I think that was really fascinating, especially when, I had, you know, mentioned that it, it seems like there's um, a potential partnership with these companies that we are usually vilifying, the oil and gas companies, the uh, chemical companies. They have the infrastructure and the resources to really implement solutions and change on that on that large scale basis. Yeah. So um, I'm going to be the pessimist here. This was my my uh, question with him. So there have been a couple things that have happened just in the last few weeks. Um, Ford Motor Company um, said basically we're, we've gone too far into the EV market uh, and we need to pull back. Uh, it's it's not working and we produce too many too fast. We changed over our factories too fast. And we don't believe that uh, the adoption of electric vehicles is going to happen at the rate we, you know, we did 20 years ago. Um, the other thing is that ExxonMobil um, basically did the same thing and, and looked out and said, we're, we're now buying $6 billion dollars of um, of uh, drilling rights back in the Permian Basin in West Texas, um, because they also believe uh, that it will be profitable to make back more than six billion dollars, significantly more than that, over the next thirty years. So both of these uh, large companies, I think, are looking out there and saying, "We're not sure that our predictions from uh, you know the turn of this century are, are holding out for for that kind of collective action change." Uh, that we thought might happen. We don't think people are going to adopt uh, non-hydrocarbon behaviors quick enough. And so that's pretty uh, pretty disturbing to me. Well, if you want to get into pessimism, uh, climate change obviously ties into national security, what we study, um, as you know, there are changes around the world, especially in terms of water, but food resources, et cetera. 
um, that you know civilizations and societies compete over these scarce resources that leads to to conflict. I, I saw a statistic, and I might be wrong here, but roughly, uh, see scholars found that roughly when there was a decrease in water resources in a very localized area, there's like an incre- a 200 increase in the probability of, of physical conflict between groups uh, in these areas, and so it has clear ramifications um, uh, in terms of national security and violence and global violence. Um, that uh, I think that we, as you know, people who look at the sort of national security standpoint, that we need to be attuned to. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge problem. I just, I don't think we've ever seen. We know collective action problems are hard to solve, right? So the the Freon Puron case, I think, was a kind of unicorn uh, in there. Um, and uh, and and when we look at bigger scales, if we look at a global scale collective action problem, I'm not sure I even have a good case study. Uh, where one worked. And, and, and if I do, it might only be World War II. So you have to be under, and the, and the problem with that is you have to actually be under bombs falling on you and bullets flying to sort of get everybody, get their ducks in a row and do something, uh, you know, forming alliances and mass producing armaments and these kinds of things. So what that tells me is, you know, it, it, until you get the really bad consequences of of climate change, it might be really hard to get collective action at a scale we as a species have never really worked at uh, well, work, work together at well. That's that's my concern. There's a tension then between, you know, Professor is very optimistic. Um, and I, I thought I found that encouraging, but I, I definitely recognize from an economic standpoint, you know, the tragedy, the commons and collective action. And, you know, when we think about global conflicts or localized conflicts from a national security perspective, that that is likely to increase. We're likely to see an increase in conflict as a result of climate change. Um, so there seems like there's this really stark tension about whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future here. Yeah. And and back to the national security question, right? What's going to happen uh, when these localized situations grow into regional situations is that the, the rich north where is going to come in and do peacekeeping or, or get involved in a war. And I think it's going to really exacerbate those global inequalities, which is only going to make uh, collective action harder to do. On the other hand, I'm a big believer in in tech. I'm a big believer that you're you're going to have a fusion breakthrough. I mean, we we already know now that we can sustain it. We're trying to scale it up. So I think you've got you know 20 years, maybe 30 years, and you're going to have uh, a, a clean sort of infinite energy source that's technically capable of uh, that's technically capable. Um, scaling that out to the world is going to is going to take a lot longer, but. I think that those things are there. I think that when you put together, you know, AI and uh, the, the revolution in biology and the revolution in biotics and material science, you've got a lot of possibilities there um, of things that could go really well and solve these problems and essentially take us into a Star Trek universe. But you know, I I wouldn't hedge my I wouldn't hedge my bets on it yet. Um, but I think it's possible. I think it's more possible than ever. Who was the who was the scholar that uh, came up with the idea of a civilization belt, and that we had these modern societies along the equator? Is that Larry Diamond or uh, it, it, Jared Diamond? Jared Diamond. Uh, yeah, I want to make a comment on L- that. Larry Larry Diamond. Now going back to grad school, Larry Diamond was a was a student democracy. of uh, democratization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I wanted to say that uh, uh, Gun, your comment, guns, germs, and steel. 
Yeah, yes. Guns, Germs, and Steel for the, for the audience, right? So Jared Diamond. Yeah. Uh, Jared Diamond's um, you know, piece on civilization. You, your comment about the potential of these local conflicts rising to the level of global conflicts is very reminiscent, I think, of what Jerry, Jared Diamond would talk about, the civilization scholar, about um, civilization and advanced civilizations in particular have have risen along a very narrow stretch stretch of the globe for a variety of different reasons and i i i wonder if that's if we will see not localized conflicts but global conflicts global conflicts of power between major nuclear powers over uh uh competition and contests over these different areas of where civilization can survive that that would be very fascinating to hypothesize yeah. Yeah, I've been been thinking about this a lot and, and uh, playing with a book idea that the way that we think about how we predict the future, by which I mean sort of the political science stuff, like the way we the way we think about international relations theories, might be coming into a, a period where some of those theories no longer apply because the things that are driving group human behavior are changing rapidly, mostly because of, of technological change. So I think when you when you lay out the, the the future Jared Diamond scenario, that's what's going through my head, is that once we're up on this global scale of collective action problems, um, I, I wonder, uh, you know, how well the institutionalist theories um, continue to hold out, because you have such extreme resource pressures and extremely locally on things like water. So a lot to think about, um, uh, and especially for us as both the uh, uh, scholars and listeners, whether or not to be optimistic or pessimistic then about the future. Uh, I do want to thank everybody for listening to this episode on Politic. Please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes, and please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody, and until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>